actually our, I think, third or fourth Sunday, meeting on a Sunday. Um, so for those of you that are here, we started a prayer meeting five years ago. And it was really um, with the vision of seeing a house of prayer established in this region. We absolutely believe in local church. We believe in the context of the ecclesia as spoken of in the New Testament. Um, but in regards to that, we were really, really marked and convicted by when Jesus came in and he cleansed the temple and his message was, my house shall be called a house of prayer. And he was actually speaking out of the context of what Isaiah prophesied, that my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. And it's that place of the reality that we don't do church separate from house of prayer, that there's not the understanding of local church and then house of prayer, but the true identity and function of the church is to operate primarily from the place of prayer. And then, then the preaching of the word, evangelism, compassion, all that we do comes from the place of prayer and is sustained from the place of prayer. Oftentimes when we're birthing a new ministry, we'll start very intense in, a pla in the place of prayer for 40 days of prayer and fasting to launch a church or things like that. But then oftentimes the function of the ministry becomes the primary and we leave that place of the identity as Jesus declared, my house shall be called a house of prayer. That that is the identity. It's that place first and foremost of relationship and communion with God. That that's what we draw people to. But it's a house of prayer, communing and fellowshipping with the Lord. But then also from that place, that making intercession on behalf of mankind. And that the, the conviction that true authority and even true manifestation of the kingdom, when we're going to preach the gospel, the only place that we truly avail to preach to the minds of man is if we've availed first in the place of prayer in intercession on behalf of souls. So it's that understanding of it, it's not separate from church, but really what happened was is from a prayer meeting, um, they, they didn't even know that I had started House of Prayer here in Cambridge, and I was working with my mother. Um, we had just launched a church plant in Haverhill, and so they didn't know that I was kind of simultaneously here laboring. They didn't know kind of the inner workings of my life. Um, and they also didn't know that Daryl, him and I weren't married at the time, but he was coming down to lead worship for the House of Prayer. But they were kind of at a, a staff retreat. They were leading it for us. And um, they, they started prophesying over me and they actually tried to be like very careful. You know how like when you see somebody moving on to a different work or establishing a different work, but they're invested. Like I was one of the, the, the elders, you know, it was me and my mom and one other gentleman, like we were the founding people of the church. So they were trying to be very discreet and not simply so, say like, we see you in a different city. Like this is not what you're, because <laughs> obviously my mother probably would have wanted to hurt them. <laughs> so they were being very discreet, but he, he, and it's funny because they had no idea I was already laboring and investing in building a house of prayer here, but their word to me was, we see that God has given you keys for a different city. And we see that there's a blueprint and keys for the unlocking of a different city. And they started preaching, uh, I mean, prophesying about a different city. And I'm sitting there knowing that the city's Boston, that I'm living in Cambridge. You know, I, I'm going, yeah, this is so, it, it was confirming, obviously, because we were just at the very ground level. So it was confirming and affirming. But I share this to say, then they start prophesying over Daryl. And at the time, him and I weren't courting. We weren't seeing each other. We probably really, really disliked each other at this moment in time, too. <laughs> but they started prophesying. <laughs> they pro started prophesying over Daryl. And just so you guys know, my husband, for those of you the guys that are here on Wednesdays and Saturdays, 
He is worship leader through and through. He leads intercession through worship. But the context of pastoral, like that mindset to him of pastoring a church was so like, ew. <laughs> like that sounds like the most burdensome. He used to always say to my mother, he still calls her Pastor Marlene, but um, he's, now that it's his mother-in-law, but he's like, Pastor Marlene, you have the hardest job in the world. I would never want to do what you do. Like <laughs> he just used to be like, church is like the hardest thing. And so it's funny because they started prophesying over him. And as they're prophesying, they actually started prophesying about the gift of preaching upon his life. And as they were prophesying about the gift of preaching, he said, I see you not just helping to establish this church, he said, but I see multitudes of churches that you will establish. And I mean, honestly, at the time, Daryl's reality was like, uh, see ya. Like, <laughs> I'm all set. I'll be the worship leader. I will labor for somebody else's work, but not in this lifetime. But the interesting thing is that when you labor in prayer for a city, there is a place of responsibility that comes upon you. There is a place where we've been praying, God, raise up a faithful witness to declare your word on the campuses of Harvard and MIT. There's a point where the finger of God starts to turn to you of going, okay, now be that faithful witness. You start to pray, God, we're asking for those that would boldly preach truth, the uncompromising gospel. The Lord begins to say, okay, boldly declare truth, the uncompromising. <laughs> like it, it all begins to turn on you kind of instead of, yes, we're still praying for multitudes with that, that DNA and that seed to be raised up. But there came a point that all the things that we're praying for, we felt like the Lord said, create a context where truth can be preached, the purity of the gospel. And and um, I'm actually going to tattle on Christina Ho, who's here. She was, the very first week when I had preached, um, she was here and she sent me an email, very, very simple, but basically thanking me and saying how she was ministered to. But I, what I, the reason I'm sharing this is that she literally said, like, every the things that we felt like the Lord was telling us why we had to do this and the responsibility she she shared about um sitting under truth and that she felt such clear i mean the things that she started outlining i said to daryl i said this is exactly the burden we had from the lord for college students that there would be a place of and yes in our prayer sets we're praying the word i mean it's all the word for two hour you know worship and intercession and sometimes on saturdays you know we try to incorporate but we felt so much the burden that the, the Lord desired a context where there could be the, the preaching, the declaring, and the discipling in the word. And so we launched our Sundays. <laughs> so, <laughs> so here we are. And what they also didn't know is that when they were speaking to me about keys for another city, I already at that time felt very, very strongly that the model wasn't necessarily house of prayer unto itself, but house of prayer compassion as in tangible acts of compassion and evangelism to those around us and church planting as a threefold cord that the three of those would operate together so we started um, two weeks ago and the message um, that I preached was really outlining the core values of us as a ministry and really what defines us as a people and where we started the first week that I preached was on Matthew 5 it's Jesus, it was his first message he ever preached when he came to earth. The Sermon on the Mount. It's the first thing, the first opportunity that Jesus gets to declare truth and he preaches Matthew 5. And really what we shared that week was that there's obviously great emphasis, great importance 
and it's a precedence that he was set, set, setting at that time, that it's truly the constitution of the kingdom is Matthew 5. And what I began to share is that we don't measure our success by the size of gathering or the outgrowth of ministry, but we measure our success as how much we as a people are wrestling to embody the reality of Matthew 5, not just in word, but in deed that he laid out the constitution for Christianity. It's Christianity 101. And so it sets before us the vision of what he calls us to. And so we, we walked all through that. And then this week, what we were going to do is actually go through, um, oh, let me go back. The, the first week that I shared, the four pillars of really what we feel like that has defined us is Matthew 5, uh, the constitution of the kingdom, uh, house of prayer, where Jesus defined the function and the identity of the church is to be a house of prayer, that, that we don't depart from that and it doesn't become secondary, but that is our identity. Um, and then a missional community, we went all really through how um, sometimes even in house of prayer, it can kind of be, be unto us meeting with the Lord, but missional community in the sense that it's unto where Jesus said, go ye therefore, that is a command for all of us, that whether you are in the workplace, whether you are on your campus, whatever sphere of society the Lord has called you to, it doesn't mean foreign missions taking a vow of poverty. It means go ye therefore and be an effective witness where you are. So missional community, and then lastly, covenantal community. Um, so those are kind of the, our defining factors. So today actually was going to be house of prayer. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to throw out some passages of the scripture to you. So that this week you can look into them and see the validity of the word that I'm going to preach next week. And maybe you might even want to interject something, <laughs> something that the Lord spoke to you. And then we're going to have um, Patty and Paul Schilling minister to us. So I'm going to throw out, get your paper and pen. <laughs> so anyhow, so house of prayer. Let me just really quickly. It's good to see you all. Um, so I had shared as in Matthew 21 and thir uh, verse 13, where Jesus declared, my house shall be a house of prayer. I've actually, the founder of YWAM, um, I'm sorry, Mark Anderson, who's now leading Youth with a Mission, he actually said that he was so missions-minded with Youth with a Mission that it was so all about the nations and the lost. And he had gotten so, um, he actually spoke this word that when he came to this passage of Scripture, and it says, it, my house shall be called the house of prayer. He said he heard the audible voice of the Lord say, in anything that is not a house of prayer is not my house. Not that it has to be called a house of prayer, obviously. There's many churches that don't have that label or that title, but that function and that identity. And that's really Mark Anderson, who's um, uh, part of the senior leadership of YWAM. That's actually what um, caused him to set him, his heart on a journey of a lifestyle of prayer and house of prayer and even scripturally the precedence for it because he heard the Lord so clearly say, my house shall be called a house of prayer and anything that is not a house of prayer is not my house. Um, but I just want to, I'm going to throw out um, seven different um, scripture references, and I would love it if you guys used it this week to study and to look into. Um, I had mentioned when I shared that week that after the tabernacle of David, there was actually six times in biblical history that the house of prayer 
the context of singers and musicians ministering 24-7 before the Lord. This the, the reality in the West of a Sunday morning context of that is church, that was not the understanding in Israel's history. That, that was not when they gathered. That is not their understanding of corporate worship. That it began with the tabernacle of David. David knew that basically what he was instituting and what he was establishing actually had already been symbolized and reflected in what Moses did. And all of you guys know the, the, the tabernacle of Moses the, in, in Leviticus, that the command was the fire on the altar shall never go out. Mm-hmm. That they had to continually tend to the fire on the altar. And it was a representation of his presence. So then you have David with the tabernacle of David in 1050 BC, and he institutes the, t- the true tabernacle. And he actually had 288 singers, 4,000 musicians, and 4,000 gatekeepers. So 24-7, there was continually a song of adoration and a song of worship before Jesus because he is worthy. There was no like major prayer focus, like we want the healing of cancer, we want to see this, we want to, it's simply, you are worthy of continual worship, continual adoration. You are worthy. He, he tapped into something of a revelation of the greatness of God in his worth. See, in our generation, like usually when you say house of prayer, 24-7 prayer and worship, that reality is so foreign to us. Then you have to get into a long biblical dispensation and explain to people the precedence for it. But you know something? The fact that we don't get 24 hours of a continual song of adoration and a continual cry of prayer, that speaks to the fact of our ridiculous, (laughs) ridiculous lack of understanding of his worth and of his greatness. That's what it speaks to, because if we had one glimpse of who he is, and that's where I want to throw out some scripture references today, because if you look in Revelations 4, it's an account of the throne room of God. If you look in Isaiah 6, Isaiah tapped into that place of the throne room of God. All throughout the Bible, actually in Jewish culture, when they were commanded to pray the scriptures, one of the aspects of scripture that they were commanded to pray was called the Theophanes, which basically meant every place where Christ was revealed, every place where God was revealed. Because you figure, if we want to know God, if we say that that is the great ambition of our life, what we should do is go into scripture where he's been revealed, where Moses saw him, where Ezekiel saw him, where Isaiah saw him, where there, the, the John saw him on the Isle of Patmos. And in, even in meditating and reading those accounts of him being revealed, there's revelation that comes to us. There's understanding that we begin to understand his nature. We begin to understand who he is, what heaven is like, that reality. And if you look at the Theophany specifically, um, I'm going to throw a few of them out to you. But um, basically, David, he tapped into the understanding of the, the throne room of God. And if you think of Revelation 4, it says they never cease day or night crying, holy, holy, holy. I think it was Joseph Garlington that had this revelation, and I've heard it kind of preached all throughout. But Joseph Garlington actually said that if they're never ceasing day or night, because let's just be honest, we're all earthen vessels here. We get to a point where we're bored in worship. (laughs) You know, we get to that point where everybody's looking at their watch, you know, in service, kind of going, okay, how long are we going to do this for? Or how? 
Well, we do that until we tap into that place where we've truly, our heart, our mind's eyes and our spirit man is beholding him. And that place of beholding him, that place of encountering him, we become so captivated, so fascinated, so enthralled that it's simply like those cherubim, those seraphim, the 24 elders, they were awestruck, completely awestruck. But really our boredom with the place of worship and prayer, it really speaks to our lack of revelation of who he is. That's, I mean, think about it in our culture and our society. Between all the technological things that we have, all of the, I don't even know all the video whatever things that are out there, but I know that they're big and I know that they're fascinating and I know people are addicted. <laughs> but even as far as the computer, with all the different social networking, we have constant outlets for stimuli. We have, I've actually heard it said that even this generation of younger kids, like in elementary school, high school, that they will so lack the ability to focus on simply one thing at a time because they have so much stimuli that while they're doing their homework, they're on Facebook and they're listening to music at the same time they have a TV, a a video going and they're playing video. There's just such a constant influx of, of stimuli that they're unable to actually sit and focus and give all their whole being, their mind, their attention, their emotions, their concentration to one thing. Which, I mean, ultimately, I love technology. I think it's a gift from God. We obviously need to use it for his kingdom. I'm not saying get rid of your computer. Hello, I have one. (laughs) Totally for it. But more what I'm speaking to is that, that place where, as a people, we've become so bored with the presence of God. People crave movies and entertainment more than they're craving the presence of God. If you think about the massive epidemic that we have in the church, even with pornography, that really comes down to a place of seeking something to be fascinated by. The human heart was created to be fascinated. You are not doing anything wrong when you're almost, well, I shouldn't say you're not doing anything wrong. You're not doing anything outside of your nature or what you're created for. For women, when it's the the continual adrenaline high of seeking something new to wear, (laughs) that continual, like, I just want something new. I just want to, I want to decorate my house a little different. I mean, I got that bug. I I mean, I like to decorate. Like, I mean, (laughs) I could spend like my whole budget. Forget my clothes. I want to decorate my house. (laughs) I get it. Totally get it. But you know what it is? It's that inward place that we were born to be fascinated. We're born to be captivated. And Joseph Garlington actually says that when, when the living creatures and the 24 elders, that if they're continually crying holy, he says, what if it's that every time they cry holy, they have been struck with a new facet of his nature, a new facet of his character, who he is. They have had a greater revelation. They have seen a greater reality of the man Christ Jesus, and it demands the response, holy, because they've seen it from a different perspective, a different angle, a different dimension. See, this is the thing about God. You could give all your day, all your time, all your energy, all your resources to searching him out and he's unsearchable to the degree that you can never exhaust who he is. I mean, it's only in eternity. I love what Alan Hood says. He says, when you enter into eternity, 
that you'll see a revelation of who God is that you've never seen, and you'll get struck to your face for 3,000 years. You can't get up. Just can't get up. And that's the crazy thing. When you read even in Daniel 10, when he had the encounter of the throne room, it says, I fell as one dead before him. Over and over, you find that they're struck dumb and speechless. Before the wonder of a great God, Job says, behold, God is great and I do not know him. <laughs> See, we all want to kind of be like, oh, I know God and he's totally, I mean, he makes himself available. He longs to be known. That's his passion is to make himself known to you. It's not that you can't know him. It's just that we're not posturing our hearts in such a fashion, in such a way that we can encounter him. It's kind of like if I just don't shut off the TV long enough to actually engage with my husband and have a conversation. It's just a choice, just a simple choice. But if I'm forever almost uh, dual processing, you know, what's on the news while my husband's trying, that's real, you know, you know, real intimate. (laughs) Really going to, I'm going to miss every other sentence. It's that simple place of posturing our lives and posturing our hearts. So what did David tap into? That he saw, I'm going way longer. Let's just go right here through these passages of scripture. It's obviously a topic that I like. Um, so David, Tabernacle of David, 1050 BC. And then what we find actually is after the Tabernacle of David, Solomon's Temple, 1010 BC in 2 Chronicles 814. Then Joash in um, 853 BC, 2 Chronicles 24. is You can actually read the account of that. Hezekiah. Um, was in 726 BC, 2 Chronicles 29, um, verse 25 is where it begins the account of that. Josiah uh, was in um, 635 BC, which you can find the account of that in 2 Chronicles 3515. Zerubbabel was in 538 BC, and you can find that in Ezra, Ezra 310. And then Nehemiah was in 446 BC, Nehemiah 12, 45, you can read the account of that. And basically what, what these accounts are is that when David had, basically the reality of night and day worship and prayer that David had instituted, that had become the reality and the understanding and expression of corporate worship. And over time, basically what would happen, kind of like us as people, the nature of Israel, is that they would forget that their identity was a kingdom of priests. They would forget that their identity was that of revealing the worth and the greatness of God to every other nation. They would forget and they would depart from that place of day and night prayer. And then with Solomon, Joash, Hezekiah, Josiah, Zerubbabel, Nehemiah, they would come along and basically what they would do, and in most of these accounts, they would actually call for a solemn assembly. They would call for national repentance A day of prayer and fasting. I mean, we know that identity and that reality here in America. We've seen that. They would call for a turning, but the difference is, is that from their place of solemn assembly, they would re-covenant with the Lord, and then they would re-institute night and day worship and prayer. All of these accounts, these six accounts after David, these these were men and leaders that set up and reinstituted night and day worship and prayer to minister before the Lord. But when you study the national history during those times, I mean, they became triumphant in war. Their economics were blessed. I mean, that was like the rise of Israel in those years is because they were functioning in their primary identity and vocation before the Lord, and it could bring the release of blessing upon them. So those are the accounts... um, 
Old Testament. And then we find, I'm actually going to turn uh, to Malachi, and then we're going to close up. You guys that are around here a lot, you hear me quote Malachi a lot. So Malachi, prophet comes on the scene. And basically, this is Malachi is prophesying 12 years after Nehemiah had rebuilt the wall and reinstituted the priesthood to minister before the Lord. So once again, Israel had forgotten that they were a kingdom of priests and they were called to display the greatness of God. So you have Malachi 1.10 is basically where Malachi is addressing and saying, who is there among you who would shut the door so that you would not kindle fire on my altar in vain? I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, nor do I accept the offering of your hands. He's basically speaking that because they no longer valued that place of priesting before the Lord. But I'm not necessarily focusing on the rebuke. I'm then focusing on Malachi 1.11, which is really the beginning of where we see, new, um, the, before we head into the New Testament, prophecy. See, before it was the reality of Israel, was a house of prayer to minister before the Lord. But we'll, we'll look at this. And in Malachi 1.11 is where he begins to prophesy it will be the Gentiles. That basically Israel did not embody that function of priesting before the Lord as their primary identity. And then he goes on to declare that from the rising of the sun even to its going down. The rising of the sun continually even till its going down. My name shall be great among the Gentiles. In every place incense shall be offered to my name a pure offering or offering for my name shall be great amongst the nations says the lord of hosts mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. incense offered to the lord is that place of priesting the priest even in the old testament it was the priest that offered the incense and it was only because of the incense that they could enter the holy of holies in the new testament well, obviously we don't burn incense the way that the the old testament priests did we offer incense in the place of worship and prayer. That is our offering before the Lord. And then when he says that every place a pure offering will be offered to my name, and my name shall be great amongst the Gentiles. The extraordinary thing is that when he references name, the word name actually means a celebrated name. It means a reputation, and it literally means fame or glory. So he's saying, my, my fame will be great amongst the nations. My glory will be great amongst the nations. That's what he is prophesying. But we have to understand, he's prophesying it in conjunction with that in every place, from the rising of the sun, even to its going down, that there will be incense that's offered. A song. And even as it's prophesied in Isaiah, even from the ends of the earth, we'll hear this song, glory to the righteous one. It's a song that will erupt, a song of worship, a song of adoration. And over and over, even I'm going to give you this passage of scripture so you guys can look this up on your own. But Isaiah 24, 16 is where it's referenced from the ends of the earth. We'll hear this song. 
glory to the righteous one. That's speaking, even when it's prophesied in the New Testament, that in the last days before the return of Christ, that every tribe and every tongue will hear the preaching of the gospel. This is prophesying that from the ends of the earth, there's going to be a song of adoration that's going to arise to him. In Isaiah chapter 42, verse 10 through 13, sing to the Lord a new song and his praise from the ends of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that is in it, you coastlands and you inhabitants of them, let the wilderness and its cities lift up their voice. The villages of Kadar's inhabitants, let the inhabitants of Selah sing. Let them shout to the top to the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. And the Lord shall go forth like a man of war. He shall stir up his zeal like a man of war. He shall cry out, yes, aloud. He shall prevail against all of his enemies. The place of seeing a triumphant church, a place that even in Malachi where it says that his name will be made great, it's when the church is operating in that priestly role of ministering before him night and day in worship and prayer that he receives the glory that is due his name and then he can do great exploits. Psalm 110. You guys, if you guys have been around here any amount of time, you've heard us pray, preach Psalm 110. It says, my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make all of your enemies your footstool. I will send the rod of my strength out of Zion. The rod of my strength out of Zion is the church. And then he goes on to say that your youth will volunteer freely in the day of power. From the womb of the dawn, you will have your youth clothed in the beauties of holiness. That's everything that we're talking about. Clothed in the beauties of holiness. Do you get that? We'll volunteer freely, meaning we'll abandon all. We'll go to any length. It's not the preaching of sell it all, give it all, sacrifice it all for Jesus. It's the we've had a revelation of the beauty of holiness. And he's worth it all. And because of that revelation, we will volunteer freely in the day of his power. It's a free will offering because it's a privilege because we've had a revelation of his worth. We've had a revelation of who he is. And that's where night and day prayer no longer becomes about a scriptural analysis or a command or even a a precedence that was set that we need to follow. It's from the revelation of his worth and his greatness, that he is worthy to be worshipped and adored. Let's very quickly, okay, what's so funny? Okay. I just... You guys really should read Revelations 4. I'm just going to say that. You should go through the whole thing. But it's the account that I was just speaking of where it says the four living creatures, each one having six wings full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and who is to come, wherever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever. And the 24 elders fall down before him who sit on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne saying, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and, and by your will, they exist and were created. You know, 
I just want to say, I, you know, I'm probably talking, I'm talking about like the throne room of God, a revelation of his holiness, like the glory of God. And I fully understand that most of us live in a place of struggling day to day with temptations, with struggles. And the reality is, is that in any context, within a group this size, there's those that are in bondage, that struggle with depression, that struggle with addictions. But I really firmly believe that even the answer to most of what we struggle with, and I, I, I want to say all, but I try so hard not to be an extremist, which is my nature. <laughs> but that all of what we wrestle with, whether it's envy, whether it's insecurity, whether it's competition, whether it's unforgiveness, whether it's materialism, whether it's masturbation, whether it's porn, whether it's video games, whether it's whatever it may be, I firmly believe that in the place of encountering the presence of God, and hear me, I'm not saying it's a one-time deal, like encounter his presence and it's all done. I'm not saying, you know, I consecrated my life to the Lord at a very young age. And by the grace of God, thank you, Jesus, I was never ensnared in any kind of an addiction, any kind of you know bondage. But there were definitely places in my heart that I knew, I absolutely knew that they were not pleasing to God, that they grieved the Spirit of God, that He wanted more for me. I felt His jealous love in areas of my life. But I can honestly say to you, I never felt like I had to work my way out of any of those situations, whether it was mentally or emotionally. Honestly, I, I had a massive, most of you don't know this, I would be in a mental hospital today if it weren't for Jesus. I w- had such a stronghold of fear, like ridiculous, demonic, paralyzing fear. It would have made me mentally ill. But even that, like things like that, I never felt like it was mine to wrestle my way out of. I felt the tenderness of the Lord just continually saying, just encounter me. Just encounter me. And some of you need to get your eyes off of maybe your circumstance or what you want to get out of or what you wish would change in your life and get it off of that indwelling on self and just encounter him. Like when you come into the presence of God, instead of assuming that he's angry or condemning you because you didn't do enough or you did too much of this or all of that psychoanalyzing junk, Just when you come into the presence of of God, silence the voice of the accuser, silence the voice of condemnation, and just know that basically you're standing before a God that no matter what you do, he is jealous for you. He is not standing with anger. He is not standing. Yes, I totally get it. He's grieved by sin. I, I understand that. I'm not negating the fact that he's grieved by sin. What I'm saying is that the road to holiness and the way to freedom is not by you focusing on your failure in yourself. Amen. 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 Yeah. That's right. That's right. It is, it is not by thinking that there is a God that is angry. How about this? Get this perspective. What if your little addiction or your bondage or whatever it is that no one else knows about, whether you profusely lie and you know that God sees that? What if, instead of you thinking God's mad at you, 
What if you see that God's vengeance is against the enemy that's ensnared you in shame? That's mm. right. Wow. Amen. Mm. That's a great God. Mm. A little bit of perspective difference. Mm -hmm. His wrath is not directed at you. He's not. He's got compassion and tender kindness. And hear me. I'm not talking a false grace that just like almost like he winks at your sin. I'm saying a God that is jealous to see you come into true freedom and liberty. That is his heart for you. He's not, he's not almost in a place of kind of going, well, you're bound in chains and condemnation and guilt. And so you just stay there. And when you get it together, then come see me. He's a God that tarries and labors long for us. I can honestly say Anything I'm doing today, and I understand I'm a part of like a national prayer and fasting movement. I totally get that. But it's not because I prayed and fasted my way to get there. <laughs> Didn't. I do pray and fast. But anything that I do, any freedom, any liberty, any clarity, any, any ability whatsoever is because there's a God that is jealous for Bethany Temple. And he refused to let me go. When I was unfaithful, he was faithful. When I was confused, he had clarity. When I was brokenhearted, I mean, you have to understand, it's not because I prayed and fasted my way to do house of prayer one day. It was because I simply said, my one option, my only choice in life is I'm going to position myself before you. No matter what it looks like, no matter how I fail, I could have done it right, I could have done it better, I should have, could have, would, all of that. My one option is I trust that you have great love for me beyond anything I could ever understand. And I'm just going to keep running to the cross. That's my choice. And if you make that, even that vow before the Lord of that no matter what tomorrow brings, I don't care if tomorrow brings the death of your parent. I don't care if tomorrow brings, and I, God forbid, and I pray that none of this falling into sexual promiscuity. If you understand that there is a God that literally his one response is, come to me. Come to me. That's all he's asking. And I, I, I can guarantee if you'll do that, he'll take care of the rest. He'll take care of the rest, I promise. But just position your life in the presence of God. Just position, make that your vow. You know, when I was 14 years old, I had just gotten like radically saved. Like, I, I mean radically saved. I actually asked my mom to take me out of public high school, put me in Christian high school. I was like, I want to give my life to Jesus. I'm going to like burn anything that's not. <laughs> I mean, I just went all after it. But it was right at that time the person that actually helped me through like my season of rebellion, like my hard season in life where I wasn't close to my mom, she was my best friend. Um, it was during that time she died of cancer. And I can, I'll never forget um, when the second diagnosis came for her cancer, I looked at my mom because I had just given my life to Jesus, and I said, if God kills Linda, I'll never serve a God like that. That was my, my statement, if God kills Linda. Like almost like somehow that he was going to do it or it's his fault. And... Sure enough, she passed away and she died. Um, devastating to me and to many of my friends. But you know what happened was, I remember at that time, I said, I have two options. I'm either running as hard and as fast away from you as I can 
because I do not trust a God that would kill my best friend. I mean, she was older. Like, she was like a mother figure to me. Like, she had kids my age. So it was devastating on many levels. But I actually said, I said, I'm going to lock myself in my room, and I'm just going to see if God speaks anything to me or what happens. And the way my mom tells it, because time is very blurry to me now, but my mom says it was three days. <laughs> I do remember her coming and, like, bringing me water, and I would go to the bathroom. But it was, like, three days and in the course of those three days, um, how many of you guys old school? Like, I've been saved a while. Do you guys, anybody here know Kent Henry? Worship leader. <laughs> old, very old. Okay. <laughs> we'll move on now. Anyway. Yeah, Kent Henry was playing in my room. Because I just thought, I'm going to be very honest. I thought, I really need a safe place. Like, I knew I better put worship music on because my heart was in danger. Like, meaning, like, God, get a hold of me because this is bad. Um, and at that time, You Are Awesome in This Place was a song that Ken Henry had written. And I just honestly sobbed and weeped. And I think I swore, you know, before the Lord, just poured it all out. But it was in that crisis moment at 14 that I came to such a revelation of the nature of God in those three days. I came to such an understanding I live in an unjust world, full of disease. She had cancer. Full of hardship, young children that give rate. I mean, it is, it is absolutely unjust what happens in our culture and our society. Crazy what goes on. But I came to the conclusion, I live in such a mad world that's full of chaos and confusion and injustice that the only thing that makes sense is Jesus. And I remember at that time, my mom kind of came into my room and she said, so what's your conclusion? And she's told me now she was like scared out of her mind what was going to happen to me just because of the anger in my heart towards the Lord at that season. And I just looked at her and I said, mom, I said, I don't understand at all. But what I do get is now I, I get it. We're not immortal beings. We live in a fallen world. And just because there's injustice in the world, it does not mean that God is unjust. What it means is, is that it's embracing this world and really the fallen nature of this world and understanding that he is the only stabilizing factor, that there's absolutely nothing guaranteed, that men are fallen beings, that they're filled with wickedness, they're filled with evil motives. And I mean, if you look at sex trafficking, all of those things. And I've heard even many college students in the surrounding area basically say, how can you say there's a good God when... You know, and they want to point their finger at starving children. But at the end of the day, none of those things is God responsible for. It's on the part of humanity that we live in a fallen world. Do you understand that for every hungry child, if the Church of America, hello, the Church of America, it's been calculated. If we just tithed our 10%, we would have enough money to feed and eradicate poverty and hunger in the entire world. It's greed. It's greed. And we want to blame that somehow on God. It's amazing the things that we want to put on he, like, like the revelation that they had, the 24 elders, holy. He's perfect. He's altogether righteous. He's altogether beautiful. He's altogether just. And what he's done is he's entrusted this world to humanity, to steward 
and it's our way of stewarding it. We have pollutants, which bring disease, and we have, I mean, it, it's our fallen nature. Ultimately, we always step back and we want to judge God that somehow it's a reflection of his, his nature of, or his character of what he's allowing. But back to 24-7 worship and prayer, that place of a revelation of who he is. And Isaiah saw that. Isaiah, if you guys on your own this week, look up Isaiah 6, and then we are done. Um, look up Isaiah chapter 6. And this, most of you know the encounter that Isaiah had. And it was at that time that the seraphim, it says that the seraphim were prophesying. The encounter that he had, it says that the, the throne room was filled with the robe of his glory. The seraphim start prophesying, holy, holy Lord God Almighty. And it says that the voice of the seraphim shook the doorposts. Now here's Isaiah who's a prophet. Here's Isaiah who was used to prophesy to the nation, but yet he is seeing the seraphim come prophesy and the authority and the weightiness of heaven upon the seraphim as they trumpeted and declared, holy is the Lord God Almighty, that it shook the doorposts. And then he goes on to have an encounter, basically of ultimate surrender. He hears the Lord say, whom will I send? And he says, send me. It's that place. It's like I said, it's, it's Psalms 110. It's that place of from encountering him is the place of abandon. From the place of total, total being enthralled and awestruck by who he is, that we will go to the ends of obedience and surrender because of his worth. Night and day prayer because he is worthy. Um, next time, I think uh, we're, I'm going to recap this, but then really where we're going to pick up um, next time is specifically on Matthew 16, um, verse 18, where Peter, where Jesus asked Peter, who am I? Who am I? And Jesus, res uh, Peter responds and he says, you are Christ, son of the living God. And Jesus responds to Peter was, upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It was upon the rock of revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Upon this rock, Peter had a revelation, you are the Christ, son of the living God. And the response was, upon this rock of revelation of the man Christ Jesus, I will build my church. And ultimately what we need to sustain day and night prayer to even see day and night prayer, it has to be born out of the revelation of Jesus Christ, yeah. of his worth, of those, whatever the seraphim, whatever the cherubim, the 24 elders that they see surrounding the throne, what we need to pray is Ephesians 1, open the eyes of my heart, give to me a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of God. We desperately need, I, I guarantee if we capture that spirit of wisdom and revelation, the knowledge of God, it will, it will bring us out of addiction. Yeah. It'll bring us out of complacency. See, that's the question. In the place of worship is our response before God. Does it reveal his worth? Does it reveal who he is? Is there an appropriate response to who God is? See, this is what I believe is that David, when he had the revelation of 24-hour worship and prayer, and specifically it was linked to them displaying the greatness of God, and even in Malachi 1.11, uh, like I had shared with you, the greatness of God being revealed. 
You have to understand that that place, a God that is worthy of being worshipped 24-7 continually, it strikes a chord of wonder. You figure Muslims, you figure Buddhists, you figure all of those that are so devout in their worship, when they begin to hear of a God that is worshipped continually, that from the ends of the earth they'll hear this song, Glory to the Righteous One. When there's a people in a church that arises and gives him the glory that's due his name, day and night and night and day, that there's an unceasing song of adoration. I just want us to stand to our feet. And I specifically want us to ask, Father, that you would give to us a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of who you are. God, we declare like Job, behold, God is great. And we do not know him. God, we confess we could give all of our days, all of our time to searching you out. And Lord, that you are inexhaustible in your beauty, in your splendor, in your glory, in your majesty, in your holiness. So God, we ask, Lord, even now, Lord, as we posture our hearts before you, Lord, would you strike our hearts with the wonder of who you are, oh God. Lord, we ask in this city, God, would you raise up a lovesick generation, Lord, that has been ruined by the love of God. Lord, would you raise up those that are clothed in the beauties of holiness, Lord, that we have seen and caught a glimpse, Lord, of your beauty. Lord, and we are undone. We are never the same that nothing can compare. Lord, that all of the false beauty of this age could not capture or ensnare us because we have seen true beauty. Lord, we worship you. And God, we ask, Lord, that even as David was inspired to offer continual worship and prayer, Lord, with the raising up of more than 8,000 priests to minister before you. God, we ask, Lord, in this generation, in our day and in our time, Lord, do it again. God, raise up a people, Lord, that have a revelation of your worth, a revelation of your majesty and your greatness. Capture our hearts. Strike our hearts with awe and wonder. Lord, we worship.